If you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 14. One of my favorite old guys that I used to work with told me about his supervisor that he had that he thought was very effective. And one of the things he liked about him is how he dealt with when you did something wrong. He said he'd call you in the office, sit you down, take out a blueprint and lay it out before the two of them, and he would start to tell you exactly what his problem was with you all the time. Everybody else in the room or in the department thought you were talking about that blueprint. When the discussion was over, the blueprint was folded up. Any questions? No, go back to work. Our message this morning is not that subtle. It's not that easy to take. But it is God's word. And what we have been seeing as we have visited uh, our time in the Psalms from the beginning in Psalm 3 through Psalm 13, with the exception of Psalm 8 itself, David has had the same theme. And that theme is persecution, oppression of good men. David has complained that those who hated and persecuted him and insulted him and abused him. In all of those psalms, it has been the same. But now in 14, things have changed and the focus is different. David now tells us of the bitter source of the actions and why these things have come about. And that is the general corruption of the nature of man. And he sees also that it is not only the enemies that have this condition in their hearts and lives, but all of mankind, all men, are corrupt. Follow along as I read Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would, sh you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his fortunes to his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This scripture is just one of the places in God's word that tells us of the condition of sinful man. Really, we can go back to Genesis chapter 1, the last verse of that chapter, and it says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. But that's not what David has just told us in this psalm. What has changed? Genesis chapter 3. If you know it, if you have it marked in your Bible, you know that is the chapter where the fall of man comes about. Sin enters this world. Yes, the devil was the one 
that would come to man and woman and tempt them, but man and woman made their own minds up to rebel against God, and sin has been present in this world ever since. But before David made this statement, we see in Genesis chapter 6 that God tells us how he viewed sin when it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. God himself saw that man was evil and continued in it because he liked it. We also see in the Psalms, in Psalm 53, which is really considered the second book of Psalm when they're broken apart, that this important detail of the sin was so important that it's there in Psalm 53, almost exactly word for word as the same as Psalm 14. But as we go on and understand that God's word explains God's word and we can't get one concept just from simple, one simply looking at one passage, we have to understand that even into the New Testament, this thought of sin continues because Paul would write in the book of Romans trying to explain that both Greeks and Jews were sinners. Greeks meaning those that were outside of the covenant people of God and the Jews themselves, the chosen people that God had enlightened to who he was. And Paul would write, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. To get together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what the Bible is teaching from beginning to end is the total depravity of the human race. I'm sure that that is not something that we have not heard before. Total depravity means radical corruption. But we must be careful to see the difference between total and utter depravity. Utter means that to be wicked as one could possibly be, as, as vile a sinner as one could conceive, that would be utter depravity. But it calls it total. It means all about us, we have a sin nature, but does not necessarily mean that we act out on that sin to its worst degree. This scripture that we read and we'll be looking at today is one of those fundamental scriptures in that thought of what God's word says. But it isn't all that God's word says through David in 14. There's more. So let's break it down and see what he says. David starts with a charge exhibited against a wicked world. A charge exhibited against a wicked world. Verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
They are corrupt. They do abominable, abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The charge is leveled. It is, there is none that does good. And David would make the point in two, in two different ways as to what that charge would look like. We have to have evidence to have a charge. And the first thing that he says is there is a contempt put upon the honor of God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They have come to such a state that they deny the very existence of God. There is no Elohim in their life. Do you realize that in the Old Testament, the word God is there some 2,500 times? But there's really two ways that the word God is looked at and used. There is Yahweh God, which is his personal name. When you see God sometimes, it'll be referring to him and it is that majestic name that he called himself to the point that when he gave the law to his people, he said, you will only speak my name with reverence, with great love and honor. And how, what they did so that they would not defile that is many times they did not use his name at all. They would use some of his characteristics like the mighty one or holy one or something along that line to, to make sure that they did not profane his name. But the other way that it is used is Elohim. And Christopher can probably give us a better enunciation of that than I can. But what's meant by that is creator God. The God that has made all that there is and because he is the one that has made all, he also is the judge and governor of the whole world. And in this piece of scripture, what the fool is saying is, I don't acknowledge that God. I have nobody that I have to answer to. So because of that, I can do and conduct myself whatever way I want. But also part of that contempt against God is shown because he is called a fool. And a fool is the, that person that is simple and unwise. It doesn't take us long in a study of the book of Proverbs to see what is called wise and who is called a fool. But there again, the great part of God's word is God's words explains to us his word. Isaiah chapter 52. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, folly and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. Did you hear what it was saying about what the fool would do? It said that he would act ungodly, exactly the opposite of what God has instructed mankind to be like. He would also bring dishonor to God by 
the way that he would refer to God himself. But there was more. It also was relational to mankind himself. They had no concern about those that were hungry, those that were thirsty. Does that sound familiar? Does that take us to the part where we think in the New Testament where Jesus was asked that question, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And what is the second greatest commandment is love mankind as yourself. Love your brother. The two of them go together. If you don't have the first one right, you can't do the second. And that's what the fool is like, which tells us then where David was taking us on the second evidence against mankind, the disgrace they bring upon the nature of mankind. What do they do to mankind? Well, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. They do no good. They are a burden on the earth. They do no service to God or bring honor to him. They do great deal of hurt to fellow men. And all of this is also not only a sin against mankind, but ultimately is a sin against God himself. This is how they are charged and exhibited of their wicked deeds in this world. Why should we be surprised at how fellow mankind hates and treats fellow men? When sin has completely corrupted their hearts, but David speaks also of God being an eyewitness to the sin of mankind. And he gives the second part, the proof of the charge. We see this in verse 2 and 3, the proof of the charge. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. God himself looks down from heaven trying to find out two things. Do men, the children of men, understand? The questions should come to our mind, understand what? Their role as created beings. How they are supposed to interact with fellow men. See, when God gave us his law, the Ten Commandments, the first three deal with us and our reverence toward him, what he said that we should do to honor and glorify him. But the next seven are all about our interaction with mankind, and that has been perverted greatly to the point that David has taken notice of the sin that is in all of mankind. And they do not seek after God. God has revealed his nature and what he is expected from them, and how have they responded? Well, verse 3 says, They all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none that does good, not even one. God himself has found none that do righteous. David might have known the scripture that we read from Genesis where when God looked down, he said, I find no one. He might be quoting God himself right here, but that is his 
decision and the conclusion that he comes to is David has confirmed his thought of mankind with what God himself says here. Now David turns from proof to his charge to try to convince sinners of the evil and of the danger, the danger of their ways. In verses 4 and 5, convince sinners of the evil and danger of their ways. Verse 4, have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? I think there's three things that David is trying to convince sinners of in their evil and of the danger of their ways. The first one is their wickedness. They are workers of iniquity. They practice it. They take pleasure in it. And he gives us a great example with just a small word picture when he says, because these evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. Think about that part of us that has to do with our appetite. It's automatic. At certain times of the day, we get hungry. And how do we, what do we do in response to that? We satisfy that by giving ourselves nutrition and food and the hunger goes away. It's a natural reaction. David uses this example and says that those that are so sinful would eat up to consume the righteous people so that their appetite is satisfied. And why do they have that appetite? Because of rebellion against God. Who was the victim there for of that appetite? God's own people, fellow mankind. But also they go farther than that in their wickedness. They do not call upon the name of God. I think this is a warning for each one of us sitting here today. Not calling on the name of God. What makes them different? They do not know that they can turn to a God of grace in a time that they need help. And that help is to deliver them from sin. They are so arrogant that they can do everything on their own and are self-sufficient. They do not turn to God. We can do the same, my friends. When we are confronted with sin, we may be, th- may, may be flawed in thinking that we're strong enough to put that temptation behind us, to do it on our own, maybe even have somebody else come alongside of us. But the thing of it is, what we should have done first and foremost is we should have turned to God. It isn't our plan B. It should be the first thing that we do. But the second thing that David warns them about is their folly. Verse 4 again. They have no knowledge. And what we read from Isaiah fits those that are fools. Fools produce folly. A friend of mine has a saying 
that seems so simple, but actually kind of is profound. You plant corn, you get corn. Folly comes from fools. The only way to change that is no longer be a fool. And David is warning them that they must not be in their folly. I think each one of us here could tell a story of something that we did foolishly. It probably comes from a lack of knowledge. It probably comes from just a curiosity that maybe takes over. But think about it. Folly comes from a lack of knowledge. And lastly, he says there is a danger. And that danger is found in verse 5. There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. God is with the generation of the righteous. They do not have to fear. He is in their midst. He has brought them together. No matter what comes about, God is in their midst. John Wesley, a great man of God, would write on when he was dying, the best of all is God is with us. He didn't say the best of all is when I have more days. Whatever the situation, on his last times on this earth, he still knew that God was with him. How does that relate and give danger to those that are not part of God's? Well, it says that they have great terror. Even in the midst of their rebellion, there can be those that are so lost and far away from God, but they still feel the terror because they can see God's people have such a rock, such a foundation. There has been many a sinner that has come to know God because of the witness of those that had the foundation of God in their life. I labeled this as what David sees as convincing sinners. I believe that this is a positive way of looking at these two verses. Because if you think about why they would be here, is David trying to convince himself of the state of sinners? No, I don't think so, because he's had the last 10 chapters that we've looked at to explain what these sinners have done. I don't think that he needs to tell us about what God thinks. Because we have his word also, and we know that he has said that they are sinners. But I think that he has them here as a realization that has humbled himself because he knows that he is part of those that are a sinner. Every one of us is a sinner. And I think that this has humbled his heart to the point where he has said, what should we do about this? If we're all sinners, what, we can, what can we do? And I believe this is a great application and maybe the greatest one in this piece of scripture. He did not say we should get revenge. But what he did say, I believe, is that we should be willing 
to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, our lives and our commitment to God and knowing that he is always with us can be a great witness to others, but we should preach God's word very lovingly to a world that is deep in their own sin. God will convict sinners, but we must be faithful, continue to preach the good news of God's word. It's not an easy subject to talk about wickedness, folly, and danger of other sinners. But all we have to do is be faithful with God's word. So David ends this psalm. So far he stated the charges against the wicked, the proof of the charge, trying to convince sinners. And how does he end? He comforts the people of God. Verses 6 and 7. He comforts the people of God. Verse 6. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. God is with the generation of the, his righteous people. The Lord is their refuge. This is as much the security of his people, but it is also, like we spoke about earlier, the terror of their, his enemies. But what does this look like? Well, it says, David is pointing a finger back to all that he has said in the past. You would shame the plans of the poor. And I think when he is saying that, he says, you know what? Ever, uh, workers of iniquity, I think you might have had some success. I might have been scared. I might have been afraid at one point but the Lord is our refuge he is the one that will guard and protect us nothing that you can do matters there again I think each one of us in this life have had those situations that have brought us to the point that we knew our only refuge could come by going before God and saying Lord I don't know what your plan is. I don't know why this is coming about in my life, but I am going to trust you. And for some of those talented people in this world, it has led them to compose and write a song. Some of those songs that we sing here, think about them. Think about songs that must have been written by people that were in despair. Some of them might have been a mighty fortress is our God. It is well with my soul. All I have is Christ. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. In those times, that refuge would lead us to know and be comforted because of the God that is on the side of his people. But what else he does and gives us as a comfort? Verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. See, there were those times in David's life, 
even when his own son was in pursuit of him, that he knew that God would deliver him. But he went farther than that and ended this psalm with something of hope that is even greater than that. And that is, it almost sounds like a prophetic uh, foretelling of what will come about, the future salvation. And what did he say? One will come out of Zion. One will restore his people. And salvation will come to all of his people. David did not know when he said those words how God would reveal that plan. But he trusted in that God. And we know that God would bring a Savior through the line of David to save his people, to bring, him, bring them unto himself. And he gives us just a little bit of a, a great encouragement as to how this looks. Because he says, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. We might think of Jacob and Israel being one and the same, and they are, but they are not. Think of Jacob, how he was a man that wrestled with God himself, who surrendered and knew God as Lord and Savior. But also, after that time, his name was changed, and his name was called Israel. And who would Israel be? He would be the community, the people of God, a great nation that God would call unto himself. He said, no longer will you be Jacob, you will be Israel. I have changed you. I have changed my people by what I will do, what I can do. Dominion and sin, the devil, has no hold anymore among men. It has been extinguished. Eternal salvation has come forth through Jesus Christ. That is the great hope of God's people. I believe that this psalm is one of those psalms that we should kind of check in our Bible, that we should have as a reference, knowing how great sin is, that man is lost in his sin. It gives evidence of our heart, and it is not good. We have turned away. There is none that does good, no, not one. But there is more. There is hope and salvation. God is with his people, not only in their refuge, but also he is the God who has the power to deliver them from evil and gather his nation to himself for an eternity. I believe that that's what David says in this psalm. But I don't think we can leave it there. I think David used the example of Jacob. And we must speak to that among ourselves today and think of each person here. Because I don't know the condition of each person's heart. See, Jacob, there was nothing special about him. In fact, he was a scoundrel. He would take away his, try to take away his own birthright from his own brother the birthright from his own brother. God called him out as he chooses those to come unto himself. We will stay in our sin until God changes our hearts. Until God changes our hearts. Paul would write 
in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This great love that God has for sinners, he draws people unto himself. He changes their hearts. He makes them his own. But that comes at a price. It comes at the price of his son's atoning work for sin. We must confess with our mouth the truth of who Christ is, that we are sinners and he has paid the price for our sin. And remember that always it's by grace and by grace alone that we are saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have had a time this morning of confessing our sin before you. And that is an act of worship to come before a holy God and do that. We see again that your servant David was burdened by sin. Not only did he see it in others, those that would torment him, but he saw it in himself. He must have known that after his time as the ruler of your nation, what would the next rulers be like? Would sin consume them? Would they stay focused on serving you? Lord, it is so easy to be drawn away by sin. We pray that we are quick to come before you, asking for your strength, your guidance in our individual lives. But we also thank you, Lord, that you are the one that draws people unto yourselves, convicts hearts that are of stone and sinful, and restores them with the love and the grace that comes only through you. We thank you for being that God. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.